Welcome back to Thunderdome, also known as the Blind Chatter Podcast. I'm your host, Tanner. Larry, how you doing? Pretty good. How you doing, buddy? Uh, I'd be better if there wasn't a full moon this weekend, but we're still here. So. We're still here. Last week, only, this week, a full moon. I was right? going to say, not only did we get the heat last week, we got the cold this week and the full moon. Yeah, and so. some fog this morning and no wind. Gotta love it, right? Equals two ducks, but that's another story for another time. Uh, not only are we here, but we're also joined by an Oregon native uh, from the Salem Kaiser Brooks area up there. Uh, the I five corridor now lives in Northern Virginia. He's uh, one of the founders of BS Calls. Uh, Sean Swearingen. Sean, how you been, man? Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks Appreciate for being on, that. man. Yeah, thank you. So I know you know Sean. We I think met on via Instagram. You know probably a year ago or something like that. And, uh, you know, I've always been intrigued with custom calls and it's always, for me, it's always been, <clears throat> I have too many calls and most of them I don't use, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if it goes back to the old days of collecting baseball cards or what my problem is, but <laughs> it's becoming a sickness. Um, and, uh, anyhow, we, you know, we met on social media. I, I I've got a, a, I think a call or two of yours. I ordered some pins, you know, I actually told a uh, Christmas boy over here, Tanner, that uh, one of them is for him. So uh, that last bundle that you sent me, next time I see him, uh, he will be a proud owner of one of those pins. I actually, we went to your Instagram page uh, before we got on and uh, I showed him one of the, what was it, Trace Amigos? Yeah, I think, yeah. Trace yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hombres. Hombres. Trace Hombres. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, those so, uh those pins do they are i mean from the just the picture you posted i mean they're beautiful thanks. the, cra the yeah, craftsmanship they, everything i mean they I mean, they look like they write million dollar checks day after day baby i wish they did for me but, uh, <laughs> me too <laughs> no they're they're pretty cool and um so that would so you get the metal components and there's pin crafters with a lot of guys that, that make different yeah. kinds of styles of pins and um but the fun part is kind of matching the wood with the color of the metal that you're using and so that wood is from Oregon, from the Lama Valley, uh, the spot where I actually grew up hunting and learned how to, you know, shoot the shotgun. And um, it's still a, a good family friend's place uh, there on the river. Um, yeah, right. To be there in, in January. On the old Willamette. What yeah. kind of what kind of wood is that? Uh, that's ash. Ash. Yeah. <laughs> that was the did other it, beautiful man. Yeah. Did, did it go on an airplane right home with you or did you have it shipped out? uh depends i my depends some stuff out yeah uh, he'll ship some stuff out or when i go back to visit my folks I'll, I'll bring some out awesome that's really cool um so i you know if you wouldn't mind to kind of break down the journey i guess you could say of you know uh the brooks kaiser salem area uh to the east coast and i i also want to say that either you attended Oregon state or there's something going on there. Uh, Cause <laughs> another thing that actually, before I had purchased one of your calls, I was like, I saw a post and I want to say it might've been during the um, elite eight 
um, yeah. basketball stuff last year with our, the Oregon State basketball team. And I saw you post something. I was like, you know, two plus two is always four. And this is not making sense to me. Right. <laughs> so I think we chatted about something on a story or something anyhow. And I got that connection from you. So why don't you give us a little bit on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, grew up uh, Sam Kaiser Brooks area, went to McNary High School. Uh, I did not play football, but we were uh, the state uh, football champs senior year. You uh, were great. Yeah, we were. I remember uh, that powerhouse team up there. 4A. Yes. McNary was always like we look luckily West Albany didn't play McNary when I was in school, but like we play them uh in like exhibition style games preseason. Okay. And they would yeah. just whoop the shit out of us. I mean yeah. they were just a bunch of you guys of, were still in our district then. So well yeah, back Lambert or Mid-Valley district. Yeah, yeah, when we were 4A. I was uh Oregon uh sorry, Corvallis High 97. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, even in 05 when my brother graduated, <clears throat> they were playing McNary. Um, but I think it was shortly thereafter, in like 2000, 2008 or 2009, they reconstructed the 5A, yeah. 6A levels, and yeah. we got kicked out of the 6A, put in the 5A, and we've just been bouncing back and forth ever since. But anywho. Yeah, Albany should not be 6A. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, not. But, uh, no. no, then, so I went to Oregon State, uh, so class of 06, uh, worked in the Oregon legislature, so day job, uh, political science. U.S. history, worked in the Oregon legislature, ran a campaign in 2008. Um, day jobs kind of dried up in 2008 for, for politics, for, for the side that I worked on. Mm -hmm. um, and then decided to move move east where, you know, the D.C. job bubble yep. hopefully never burst, knock on wood, um, and just kind of ran through the government affairs and association world. Uh, met my wife uh, at my first job in D.C. with some lifelong friends. One well, of my hunting buddies, I got hooked into duck hunting. He married a gal from Iowa and went back and he had fun pheasant shooting. And I was like, well, John, if you like shooting pheasants, let me talk to you about ducks. Uh -huh. <laughs> yep. Um, and I've been back here since, so that would be December of 2008. Okay. And quickly learned uh Duck hunting here isn't as good as it is in the Pacific Highway. Are you sure about that? <laughs> I'm. I think positive. this weekend. I think this weekend might give you a run for your money. <laughs> well, see, between the number of days of season and your limits, which we right. could talk all day about limits. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, it's do doesn't even compare. Apples and oranges. Now, when and, you grew up, when you grew up in the Brooks area and stuff, was there a lot of uh, geese around there back then in the nineties? Yeah. You know, so I, I need to check my history on it, but I, my dad is who got me into duck and, and goose hunting, hunting in general, um, with some of his buddies. And I started, I mean, I'm going out like six, seven years old. I remember going out with him, um, and then getting a little older and then getting a single shot 20 gauge was my first gun. And then graduating to, uh, the 870 pumps when they were still reliably made. Um, and I still got that thing. I did. I only recently retired it to my turkey gun, uh, but I, that was my everyday shooter until about three years ago. Just take care of it, clean it after every hunt. Um, yeah. And he's, it's still good as gold. Um, but my dad didn't shoot geese that much. I, I can't remember if the seasons were closed or, or what was going on. But then I remember when they opened it back up and they had the permit zone. And then me and my buddy, Matt, who's the, the B and BS calls, uh, and my buddy Jordan, I remember us going down to take the test for the goose test in person at Sportsman's there in Salem. And my dad still has a VHS tape uh, that ODF&W put out 
for identifying geese subspecies. It's really? probably the same one they still use today because they have not <laughs> updated any of their photos or I helped my wife take hers. We studied for it and stuff last year. And I was like looking at some of the material and I'm like, this is, this has got to be from like pre Y2K. Like this stuff is oh, old. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. But I mean, <laughs> it's all good information. So I guess you think they maybe digitize it, but right. Yeah. I mean, so there was geese. I mean, there was plenty of geese around. Um, nothing like that is now. I mean, there's the goose population has exploded. Oh yeah. And I remember talking with the, my buddies that I grew up hunting with, um, you know, we were just observing it was, was it Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays that yeah. it was and it only could start until 8 a.m. Yep. Um, four birds. You only shoot two cacklers, two, four, four, yep. four total. Yep. But you only shoot two cacklers. Um, and I can't remember if the other ones were limited, the Westerns and uh, Lessers and Tabs. Yeah. Uh, but then the numbers of cacklers we were seeing is like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, how is ODF and W not observing this and through the mm-hmm. check stations? Right. Yeah. And it took them what, like six seasons later, eight seasons later to realize, oh, we need to up the CACRA limits. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and then a couple of years ago, they went as far as to say, um, if the preseason surveys go well and there's a large number, don't be surprised if you see an elevated limit to six per person, wow. which still hasn't happened. But I mean, with the amount of birds that you see around here, like in the peak of the migration, there's mm-hmm. so many cacklers mm-hmm. around. I mean, it's just, it's nutty yeah absolutely so on the uh call side of it obviously uh um, this kind of what's led us here i guess uh from the beginning but has that kind of been a hobby since you were a kid or something that you got into as an adult just woodworking kind of stuff um i mean i kind of started getting into it in college more so my grandfather uh on my mom's side he was uh, a logger and farmer and then when he retired he got into woodworking my dad dabbled in woodworking as well and he's a a welder uh, machinist by trade um and my uncle who's also a farmer uh he had gotten a, an ash tree fell down on one of the farms he's like if you want it it's yours so one of my grandparents neighbors had a mobile uh mill yep. so i took load up the tree <laughs> and then took it over over the hill to uh, my grandparents neighbor and he milled it down uh, gave him some wood the miller's wood gave my grandfather some wood and I was going to try making baseball bats because they're mm-hmm. ash, you know. Right. That's my dad said, well, you need to practice first on a lathe. And I was like, oh, what can I practice with first to kind of get used to it? And turn it up being duck because I've yet to make a baseball bat. <laughs> and that's been since, oh, about 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, dabbled in some duck calls, made my hunting buddies uh, duck calls, high school buddies and college buddies. Um very rudimentary still trying sure. to figure it out i mean the internet then was like yeah it was there but you know you didn't have the forums and the call makers and everything right. else like there is now um which is great i think it's great for guys the more callers the more call makers the better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and my buddy matt we were kind of kidding before i moved east uh he started making them a little bit i'm like man we gotta make a call company we'll call it bs calls you know guys will think oh it stands for you know Yesing. Right. But Veer was his last name and it's swearing in his mind. So it kind of made sense. Yes. Yeah. Worked out. So when I moved east and I didn't have, uh, I mean, just an apartment, I have space for a lathe or anything like that. He took off with it. So he'd make some calls to send to me and I'd sell them. Um, and then his family life took off. He's got two daughters and he's got some acreage and work. And 
Uh, he still got all his shop stuff. But about, about that time, I got a townhouse with my wife and had a garage to put the lathe in it. And then I kind of took off with it. Um, and so I kind of learned some stuff from him and what he did. Um, and then just kind of adapted to what I thought mm-hmm. worked best. And uh, he was made some really good duck calls, you know, designed his own inserts. Um, mm-hmm. I should say inserts, but his um, tone board jigs. Is yep. fixtures, as a machinist will call it. Okay. Um, and then I kind of made my own. Um, but he made, when I got married, he made me a, a duck call and a goose call. He made each of the groomsmen, him being the best man. So we all got uh, duck calls from him made out of locust wood uh, from a candidate whose campaign I ran back in 2008 at locust wood. It's just, it sounds great. It's good density. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's how. And then I just, I started fine-tuning my duck calls i got a what i call is a sally it's more of a older school raspy old hen sound um and then i all my calls are named after uh dogs Uh, okay good jada is a is a shorter insert harder insert uh more high-pitched highball sound and that's named for my uh buddy uh mike's he's a guide here in maryland um, his dog Jada, and then after a couple of years, finally researched and did enough R and D on my short read uh, design. So I got my own jig process for for creating my own goose guts. So that's Zeus goose uh, after my dog Zeus. And then the uh, the duck call that I got from you that does have an acrylic uh, insert. Yeah, right. Which so, I thought was pretty cool, and and you know, it's a, a seamless transition. He did an awesome job on it. I really like it. Thank you. So what I did with that is what they call with uh, they it's sleeved. So, sleeved. There you go. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a wood barrel and a wood insert, but you take a um, an acrylic dowel and run through it, and that is what you create um, your tone board with. Yep. So it's basically uh, it's a hybridization, if you will. Sure. But you're using the acoustics of the wood barrel and the insert against that acrylic. Um, and it makes a really neat sound, I think. It, it does. And it's still really pretty. Yes, uh, agreed. And that's, you know, when I, I guess, uh, for my journey of collecting calls and doing things along those lines, that, uh, you know, what at least I think I bought my first, what I would say, high quality call, you know, 20 years ago. And it's a engraved. <laughs> daisy cutter right and you know i paid a bazillion dollars for it i probably saved up a a yearly salary to pay for the stinking thing and i had to have it right and Mm -hmm. at that moment it was i needed to continue to buy um acrylics and that was i just liked the sound of them you know they didn't appear to me like they locked up as often that was just you know a young as i was a young child um and then after some time, you know, I still really love acrylic calls, but the craftsmanship, you know, of either one, uh, yeah. but the looks of, of the wood does kind of, I don't know, maybe it's just getting in my old age, but uh, I do have an appreciation for the kind of that traditional kind of look. Yeah. So and it kind of reminds me going back a little bit on get me into call. So I grew up, my dad wasn't a big duck caller when we hunted, but he had an old 66 I, I think of what it was so it wasn't the the black rubbered eyes old you know keyhole ones that everybody thinks so and think old it was a little bit newer wooden oh and it sounded great uh, mm-hmm. just a simple quacks yep and then the buddy that he hunts with um 
he had a you know wooden call too. I don't think it was an old technology. I'll have to ask him what it was. But I just like that sound, and that's what I wanted to recreate was that raspy old hen sound because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it works. It, yes, yes. And frankly, I think woods. And my buddy, one of my buddies at Huntwood, he compared acrylic calls to wood calls. It's like listening to Dark Side of the Moon, you know, on your iPhone versus on vinyl. Right. They both yeah. sound good, but it's a little bit different. That's it's not the bit. only time I've heard somebody compare, you know, a high-end acrylic to a hand-turned custom wood call. You know, they're like, it's like listening to, you know, it's like listening to something on your phone and then, you know, you hear it played on an old vinyl and it's like, eh. they've both got mm-hmm. their perks, but it's like, they're, it's just a beautiful, it's, the sound that you get from the wood call sometimes is like just that pure, there's no... Uh, like informality to it i mean it just sounds more ducky yeah exactly and and tanner's been bugging me and i talked to you a little bit about this on on your uh new your your zeus goose Mm -hmm. wooden goose call uh i know tanner tanner's got some uh he's been intrigued with that sucker for about three weeks now (laughs) well let me get off my lantern um so those folks watching the youtube channel um (laughs) So I got a wooden Zeus goose, and this is all Coca-Bola, but, um, you know, the guts themselves are still are um, plastic. Yep. Mm-hmm. So make so I cut this down myself, shave the reed, and, you know, do all that fine-tuning itself. But, you know, you guys know Sean Mann, Sean Mann Outdoors, yep. you know, mm-hmm. is, is uh, you know, world famous. Oh, yeah. So he says, he, I mean, it's, it's, it takes a, a trick ear to it. He thinks maple makes the best sound, the best goose sound. But whether it's coca bola or maple or a walnut or a hedge, um, I mean, each one does have just a little bit different sound to them um, compared to you know acrylic. It actually does make a, a little bit of a difference. Yeah, and and walnut's a little bit or not walnut. Um, maple is a little bit of a softer sound, but there's just something with it that makes it sound yeah. different. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. I love the wood. You know, I've always wanted to, I've had a, you know, I had a zinc call I bought years ago and they came out with a wood version of it, the call of death. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to go buy one, but like every time I see one, I'm like, man, I don't need it. But I heard it one day and I was like, I really need to get one of these in my, my arsenal. But yeah, just different kind of cluck, different kind of, you know, moan is just, just a different sound. And they're all, I mean, like you said, Larry, you know, all the calls that you have that you collect, they're all tools. It's just a different tool in your belt that calls for a different time. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, you took was, that. You took that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I was just going to mention that I was hunting with my buddy John yesterday. Um, we're hunting a new spot. Uh, Duck season opened back up this week in Virginia. And, uh, you know, we had some mallards running traffic up overhead. And so I hit him with my, my Jada, the higher pitch, higher ball call. Um, I mean, as soon as they kind of dropped that layer down a little bit closer, you know, I switched my softer, um, raspier um, mallard call, my old hen call, mm-hmm. just so it's, you're not blowing out their eardrums as they get a little bit closer. And it sounds like a little bit different in the woods. I, I am a big believer of that. You know, I, 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 I got a, a call on my lanyard that that's the mile high club. And then I got another one, you know, that I, I'm trying to talk sweet music to them. Oh, yeah. You know. Uh, do you primarily hunt? Is there a lot of wooded areas that you hunt um, up around there? 
Yeah, I do. That there's a public land spot that I hunt. Um, it's all hardwood bottoms. Um, it's got a small, uh, for lack of better terms, river. I mean, it's not a big river. Um, it's it's a it's a smaller headwater of, of a tidal river, um, but it braids through this hardwood bottom. It's got a little bit of elevation to it, so you got oaks, you got hickories, um, you got some walnuts, you got all kinds of stuff through there. And we found I was turkey hunting this this area last spring and and happened upon this area. And I was like, man, this this is gonna be great come duck season. And so we I mean, we managed you know one duck, which is I think pretty pretty good going to a new spot you hadn't hunted before, underwater, had plenty of traffic, and considering it was on the cool and clear side with no wind, yeah. I'll take it. Tell but I saw plenty get. of good traffic going overhead. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm many hunting the woods. I mean, we got you know the ag fields, whether it's soybean fields or corn fields. Uh, that's that's the main ag that you're going to be hunting out here, and everybody's hunting usually impoundments with flooded corn. Um, some grasses in there but but that's pretty much it larry was saying that you actually went over to uh the worlds correct yeah and you yeah. took you took zeus to the worlds yeah i took zeus and and sally uh to the worlds i had i didn't intend on competing that day i was just gonna go network with a, a few guys uh some exhibitors mm -hmm. some other guys i know um and i was talking to a buddy of mine he's like man if you don't enter that like, you need to I mean, no. like if I was there with you, I'd pay and I'd put you in without you knowing and you'd have to compete. So, right. Now, was there a lot of other people that are competing with wood calls or is that primarily like an acrylic event? I mean, it's mainly acrylic. I didn't know anybody else. I didn't see anybody else using a wood call. Yeah. Um, I mean, just acrylic is what pretty much everybody uses nowadays. Yeah. Well, everybody has the interpretation that acrylic has all that, you know, it, I mean, and it does not to take it away from acrylic, but acrylic has that wide variety of range that you can tap into um yeah. with that harder sound um you get cleaner turns cleaner clocks you get all that but you don't see a lot of guys that run wood calls i was just curious how um you blew in it correct mm -hmm. yeah uh so i i got there and i figured well what the heck so i i competed in uh the world live duck which is a, a one-man routine and then world goose uh which is what they're known for i mean that's what easton started right um and competed in that and there's 20 guys in, in world goose um and they have a team uh live duck a team um live goose and then you have live goose which is one man show then the live duck one man show yeah and goose so with the live i don't know if you guys know so the live competitions there's no structure you just gotta sound like live birds mm -hmm. the only thing you get dinged on those routines is if you, you know make a mistake right but is if you make a noise that a live actual bird does not make. Uh, but with the world goose, you have, you have a, you have some guardrails to stay within. You have to call like, okay, you see some geese in the distance. You need to call them to your ground, you know, to where your, your field, uh, you have to react like they didn't land and they're going to turn away. You need to call them back and then you call them to the ground or the water. Uh, and you have to do that all within 90 seconds really oh, wow that's a quick uh that's a lot of that's a lot to jam into 90 seconds it it, it, I mean, it isn't it isn't so like when you're prepping a routine and i i sat in the car when i had breaks trying to come up with my routine and like man i, I have my timer going on my phone it's like man 90 seconds i get to about like a minute 10 it's like i still got 20 more seconds i gotta fill uh -huh. that's fair that's fair yeah and it's like man 
But then once you're up on stage, it's like that red light goes off that your time's up. It's like, oh, shoot, where'd that time go? <laughs> Sounds like a really but, good experience, though. It is. It is. It's, you know, you know, I had this mentality, too. Um, but when it comes to calling contacts, like, guy, yeah, ducks don't make a high ball sound. You know, that screaming on stage when the duck yeah. calls. Like, the 20, the 22 noter. Yeah, exactly. It's like that doesn't how does that apply to hunting but there's notes that you can learn when you're doing a calling contest or you're just preparing for it that you can take and apply to the field and it's mm-hmm. just it's really boils down to knowing how to use the call and using that tool to its fullest ability yeah i do that every year when we go over to summer lake um <laughs> i'm that <laughs> jackass out in the marsh at i don't know five o'clock when you get out there i grab my calls and i put them on and i Lean back, I take a big old breath, and I throw about 25 or 30 notes through my call just as loud as I can, as hard as I can, just to let everybody know that the – there. Yeah, I'm here, buddy. But, yeah, you got to love those guys at public land. <laughs> Especially on opening morning when there's 250 of them out there stuffed into a marsh where only half of it's flooded, and you're like, oh, I can see what this guy's eating for a snack in the middle of the day, you know? But, yeah. So how did that sound uh, on the stage there, the wooden call? I mean, I thought it sounded pretty good. The one thing that surprised so I did the duck earlier in the day, um, and I was surprised how much – so they were in a, a high school auditorium. Mm-hmm. I uh, saw a couple of videos school. of it. Yeah, and you don't think – I mean, it really echoes inside there. You don't hear it when you're down um, in the seating. You don't hear it echo. But when you're up on stage, you just get so much reverberation coming back to you, so much feedback. Yeah. It was that part was a little bit of a shock. Um, mm. And then when I listened to the video of, of my duck routine, I was like, man, my feeder really isn't coming up uh, on the video audio. But when I came when I, up on stage, uh, I'm eight feet from the judges. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's really who you're playing for is the judges, not so much, much the audience. Yeah. And the goose sounded pretty loud up there too. Um I don't know. Honestly, I kind of blacked out. I just kind of focused on what I needed to do and just yeah. did your thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, I guess the next thing, uh, Sean, let's, let's, uh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about your writing? I think I, I seen a couple things in uh, split read. Yeah. With them. I've been writing with, um, split read. It's, you know, a waterfowl centric online publication, um, for about, this is about, March earlier this year, I think they have published my first article. Um, so Split Read, they do writing, they have content, they put out some amazing videos. Um, so you, did you guys watch Duck Camp Dinners? Uh, Chef um, Cajun guy, I can't remember his name. I did not. Sounds uh, like I should though. Check it out on YouTube. Um, they have a media side and they put together and shot that video. Um, and Meat Eater guys actually bought the series and it'll be the first thing that's ever been non-filmed by Meat Eater, hosted on Meat Eater. Really? Which is kind of a big thing for them because they've been around for like 10 years. Yeah. Um, but then Split Read's kind of like a, a clearinghouse for guides and out- outfitters. Um, so like if you want to go out to Kansas, uh, you see somebody's shiny web page and you go there, it's like, man, this isn't what it was supposed to be at all. Um this kind of li- allows you know guys to know that it actually lives up to what it's supposed to be. Oh, that's cool. Um, so it's it's you know pretty broad range, but uh, the writing's been really fun. Uh, working a little bit more on like, the conservation issues, um, scientific issues, uh, 
I got an editorial piece that's going to be going up in a couple, actually might be this week. Um, should be interesting because you always see guys tagging their locations and kind of blow up spots and uh, kind of pissing off some of the locals or other guys yeah. that have been hunting it for years. And then I got another, um, it's half editorial, half um, putting out scientific research on the fact that the Atlantic Flyway isn't supposed to have mallards. Historically, mm -hmm. never had mallards. Black ducks were kind of what existed out here in Atlantic Flyway until about the 1920s. Um, they started releasing half a million mallards based on the European domesticated mallard um, every year. Really? And yeah, it's crazy. Check out um, Ramsey Russell's uh, podcast interviewed uh, Phil Levretsky, uh, University of Texas, El Paso. Uh, so I'm kind of going down the rabbit hole with him. And Chris Nikolai at um, Doctor, excuse me, Chris Nikolai at uh, Delta um, for that piece. Now it's probably come out in January, but uh, you know they got a great writing team at Split Read, um, in addition to media guys, and it's been been a lot of fun. That's pretty freaking cool. And what what led you there? Was that your background here in the political side of life? <laughs> No, if anything, I try to take a little bit of a different slant when it comes to politics. You know, less is more. Sure. Um, but, uh, no, I got, and it, frankly, it kind of took me a little while to get into reading and writing for, for joy after college. And I think we've, we kind of, most all of us experienced that. Sure, yep. But I was listening, actually, on the Metro train going home probably about two years ago um, to the Mediator podcast, and they were interviewing, uh, I took Tanner for research, and it, uh, Thomas McGuine. Yeah, uh, he's actually Jimmy Buffett's brother-in-law, and wrote a series of books. He was best friends with uh, Jim Harrison, another famous uh, writer. Um, and just listening to you know Mr. McGuire talk about writing, and, you know, and talking about the outdoors with you know Steve Rennell and that team, like maybe want me kind of jot down memories from hunting and fishing and growing up. Um, I got a short story I, I haven't done anything with, and I'm still building on it. Um, I've kind of called green shingles, but it's about, you know, kind of that moss on the old cedar shingles of some of the farmhouses that we know in the Willamette Valley. Um, and that was seen in kind of you know, that musty smell of like mm -hmm. old um, cotton uh, camouflage netting that you get piled up yep. or those old, uh, you know, the decoy cords that kind of get that moisture. It's just mm -hmm. there's something about that, that it always kind of sticks with you. Mm -hmm. um, I remember old burlap bags. Oh yeah. I was gonna say burlap right. sacks where yeah. for, we'd cover our boat motors with them and it was just like you could smell them the second you drive into the house, you get out and you're like, ugh, smell that burlap. It, and instantly it's like, you know, you're picturing back on the boat. Right? Yep. Right. yep. And so just kind of writing about stuff like that and some other short stories and stuff I've I've done. Uh, but split read was the first uh first published pieces that you know, Corey and um Nick and the and Ryan and those guys out there. I just, I just started sending samples out uh, and I knew Split Read did some writing. So I sent them like, hey, if you guys were interested in, in writing and then they had uh, some openings on the writing team and um, they went back and revisited it and had me come on. And I talked to some other uh, writers, uh, fly fishing on the side, uh, artist Bob White. If you guys like uh, fishing and he does hunting scenes too. Um, Bob White is great. Uh, Steve Ramirez uh, is a writer down in Texas, um, Marine Corps vet, uh, fly fisherman. Um, 
God, his book's escaping me at the time right now. I think it's Casting Forward is, is his book. He had some great advice on writing. Um, but it's been a great you know, little hobby. Um, mm-hmm. Pays for, awesome. for ammo when yeah. I can find it. Well, congratulations on this pretty cool stuff. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, obviously by, you know, I guess having the luxury, I guess if you want to call it that, you've, you've hunted uh, both the Atlantic and the Pacific, at least at, uh, for a duration of your life. Um, you know, what's, uh, why don't you cover some of that fun stuff with us for a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, so in the Valley, on a lot of sheet water, um, I was lucky enough, didn't realize at the time, I never hunted public land growing up. Um, I had family friends, family members that had owned land. Um, I was pretty much the only one that probably ever hunted it, maybe a cousin, uh, mm-hmm. maybe one of the owners, you know, old timer buddies hunted it. Um, one of my buddies from high school was is still a big grassy farmer in the valley. And just, so when geese opened back up, with the Northwest permit zone, as we were talking about earlier, had plenty of acres to go out there and pursue with my buddies. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we hunted some, some river bottoms, we hunted some sheet water, um, you know, the weather pushing in, you know, birds from off the coast, as you guys, I think referenced on another podcast earlier. I mean, just a lot of changing dynamics and a good diversity of birds and then transitioning out to here, having to grind it out. I, I hate that term, but, you know, just really kind of cut your teeth, almost learning again, a new flyway mm-hmm. uh, in a new area and where it's all hardwood bottoms, some creek drainages, everything's locked up land-wise, private-wise with leases. Uh, right. Just that mentality out here is just so ingrained. If you don't own it, you got to get in a lease or a club and yeah. then that's going to cost yeah. pretty it penny. Costs. Yes. Yeah. That's, then, starting, you know, that's starting to become more prominent around here too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. and, and you know, you and I, Larry and I spoke the other day about it. We met up at the refuge and we're talking and, and, you know, it's one thing to lease a, um, a spot of land from somebody that has a number of other smaller areas around there. Um, mm-hmm. But for you just to like go out of the blue and find some farmer who has no issues giving somebody permission to hunt um, without a cost and for you to go up and just throw out money just to lock it down and then not hunt it. There's two or three around here um, that people lease and then they don't hunt it ever. Like they hunt it like twice a year and you just, you create these, which is, it's kind of a double-edged sword because you create these almost response for them, which is good to have. But at the same time, you know, flip the, flip the coin over and look at the other side of the coin. Then, you know, you've got those birds that know, well, I'm getting pressured a lot today. I might as well just go hang out here. And then those get all piled up and, you know, it just kind of throws a wrench in, in the plans for people. And then you can't find places to hunt because everybody's leasing something. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I will say about the Pacific Club is the public land that there is, there's plenty of it and there's a good uh, diversity of it. There's not a lot of public land out here for waterfowl um, in the Atlantic, in the mid Atlantic area where I'm hunting. So I'm in Northern Virginia and I got to drive about an hour and a half south for a reliably decent, for here, decent for here, uh, WMA. I mean, you can get a boat, it's got some more costs into it, and you got to figure out blind license laws, which is a whole nother deep rabbit hole here. And just the history and the political dynamics of that between Virginia and Maryland and Delaware. But I mean, I've killed um, black ducks with some of my good buddies. Shout out to Nick uh, and Rory and Jamie. Um, in the salt marshes of Delaware, 
uh, is state public land. Paddled in on the kayak. They have a blind stake. We got to be so so close to it to hunt. Um, shot a you know black ducks. Called them in. Very rare birds with uh, one of my prototype calls. Um, and you know that's a, you hear in the surf break over the dunes as the sun rises and just a really cool scenario. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean the salt marshes here are, are a really cool experience. They're dangerous. Um, you know in the mud and everything. You got to watch the tides yeah. and the winds. But that's that's a really cool experience for out here. And the diver ducks and the sea ducks, um, you know, kind of added to the to my forty one list. Um, but it's it's a pretty cool variety. But for the average hunter, it's really tough, mm-hmm. I think, and it makes it tough for recruiting. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, around here, you know, I grew up hunting. I mean, primarily the Willamette, the river. I mean, we would go out when we weren't deer hunting, we would hook up the boat and we'd put in at the launch. And I mean, we had a stretch of river that we'd hunt that was probably, I don't know, a mile long. And, and there was a few other guys that hunted it, but we all kind of had our own, not our own spots, but you know, one guy would get to the boat ramp at 345 and you knew exactly where he was going to be. So you didn't even bother going up there. And then usually, you know, we were the next guy out. So we'd go to the next spot. And then the guy that would come out after that, you know, it was almost like a pecking order. Like, Hey, if you want to get here this early, it's yours. If you don't, it's not, you know, and it, it worked really well. I mean, we hunted it all through my growing up time till I was probably, I don't know, a senior in high school. And then I started to branch out on my own and I had some farmer buddies who had some fields that I could hunt and, um, I don't think I've even hunted the river really since high school. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't hunted the river in, in, a, in a long time, but there's some channels off of the river that I'll, I'll get into to, you know, once yeah. or twice a season. But my, my growing up was all on private, kind of like you, Sean, it was all, you know, family, friends or family or whatever. And it was sheet water. And, you know, all of a sudden I would see, you know, 500 ducks out on some sheet water and, Oh, yeah. And I needed to build a blind there somehow, some way. Right. So that was kind of my, this when you started cutting trash cans in half vertically, this was before then, before <laughs> the trash cans in half. Um, but it, you know, I, I basically never grew out of my childhood in regards to building forts. Right. Um, yeah. so I, I, uh, would put these things up wherever I could out of anything that I made. And I kind of would hop around different properties and it was interesting growing up for me as a kid because uh, at least in the area that I hunted, um, there was a lot of duck hunting history there that I didn't even know about until I started experiencing it. And then, you know, you, you said, you know, I have an uncle or a cousin or even my dad or something, you know, I'd be like, oh, I saw a bunch of ducks over here. And he's like, yeah, that's the greenhead hole. I'm like, what? Like, oh, yeah, that's where your grandpa and, and Joe used to go hunting all the time. Right. And things along those lines that um, it almost, at least in my little circle, it seemed like there went um, agricultural and some and recreation coexided Mm -hmm. for a little while. And then it's almost, you know, as I think some of the smaller farmers struggled with their businesses and were bought out by bigger farmers, it turned into a business. And I think some of those places turned into you know, that they actually don't even exist anymore. Um, you know, I have stories from my dad and uh, grandpa and stuff like that, that, you know, I would say even from where I live now within 
a, a half a mile, three quarters of a mile, there used to be probably 20 pits and duck, duck blinds, right? Yeah. And you look out there now and there's nothing. There used to be, a, my dad used to talk all about uh, uh, walking fence rows and shooting, you know, roosters. And yeah. now, now, I mean, I might see a rooster every three to five years, maybe. But my dad yeah. just said, I mean, he used to just shoot them all the time. Maybe that's why there's none around anymore. I don't know. But obviously the <laughs> well, landscape you're, has you're changed, right. right? I mean, some of it's, you know, with the way, I want to say professionalism of farming, but maybe the mentality of farming is where they fence out or they yep. uh, farm out those fence rows. Yep. Um, you know, I remember seeing that. And, um, you know, it's interesting when you relate to pheasants because pheasants were first introduced in the United States in the Willamette Valley. Yeah, I they have introduced their yep. first. And then win ace. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, a sad state to have that there. Um, mm-hmm. But it's unfortunate because, you know, farmers have, they're struggling enough alone. You know, making sure they get paid what they need to be paid for their crops. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, some of the quail, uh, valley quail and mm-hmm. some of the pheasants and, um, you know, some of the predator management that you have to do. But the history there, I think maybe our generation, I'm probably close, closer to you, Larry, than to Tanner in age. <laughs> And hunting wise, uh, <laughs> but with the um, Amish you know, beard, and now you got me with the age gap, and <laughs> it's the ginger. It makes you look young. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I think there's a lot of history along the valley in in the Northwest that you know we really didn't know growing up mm-hmm. um, that we're trying to figure out. And, you know, I think it's some of it's you know, there's some projects I'm working on um, that we need to try to make sure is there for the younger guys or the newer folks coming into hunting. Um, right. in that area it's not just you know the big piles of widgeon as they come in and yep. you know it's you know the dynamic has shifted in that flyway and there's just what the history was then and now you know where your road might be taking you well um, i'll tell you where i feel the road's taking us and uh a, a good part of that has to do with the increase in hazelnuts that we have here and wood yeah. ducks right um mm-hmm. so that's wouldn't you agree tanner that at least oh 100 yeah yeah. I mean, there's more hazelnut farms popping up than, I mean, I have, you know, one of the guys that I'm buddies with, that's a farmer. He started some hazelnuts. I don't know. I think like three or four years ago. And I mean, you look around and it's like, these all used to be like annual fields or ryegrass or, and they're all popping up as hazelnuts now. I mean, it's an ever-changing dynamic in duck hunting is what you have around you. Correct. Yeah. So, and even you also the- got to think, Think about two of um, you know what the valley looked like, you know, and what with the birds historically migrating in, we're seeing they're probably seeing mm-hmm. more trees than they were probably seeing activism. I mean, they're probably seeing some flooded, you know, sure. land and stuff like yeah. that too. Yeah. Um, personally, I love wood ducks. Wood ducks are one of my favorite. Um, my son mentioned it to me when I brought a wood duck home last night. It's like mm, wood duck, my favorite. He's ready to yeah. eat them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I like to see. You know, so talking a little bit about history, what we're seeing here is a book, if you guys haven't read it, uh, Latner, uh, Big December Canvasbacks, Worth Matthewson, um, from Oregon. You know, I, I, he was a writer from Salem. Um, didn't know he was there until a buddy uh, told me about the book, read the book, and started going that rabbit hole of anything else he'd written. I did some sleuthing, was able to find a phone number and email, or excuse me, email for him. Um, he lived like, 10 minutes from where I uh, started hunting. Really? That's funny. Um, Was able to get on the phone with him twice. He's very uh, old. He's got some health issues. 
uh, still trying to track him down for another uh, interview, hopefully, if he's got it in him. But check out that book. And then, you know, he thinks, you know, the limits in the Pacific Highway is probably still probably too liberal um, mm-hmm. in his mind. You know, seven birds, you know, seven mallards, seven teal and what, and what have you. Um, you know, and I think that'd be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of hunters in flyway. Mm-hmm. But, oh, you yeah. know, comparing, comparing here to the Atlantic flyway, uh, we dropped um, from four mallards to two mallards uh, since I started hunting here. Uh, the limit for black ducks went from one to two because that population is doing better. Um, I, I don't know if this was on, on the podcast, but I mentioned that uh, I think I did. The Atlantic Flyway is supposed to have mallards historically. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so some of that's that trend. <clears throat> and our goose population, which you know the, the eastern shore of Maryland is known for, um, that has dropped because of poor breeding year uh, for the Canada goose. I can't remember how many days, but the limit was two, and now it's one for a 30-day season. Really? And some of that 30-day season is Sundays, in which a lot of guys can't hunt because of the blue loss. So what is it? What is, what's the reason behind it? They're called blue laws, um, older religious. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, you know, Sundays only for church. You can't hunt. You can't, you know, go shopping. Hmm. Um, hunting. No, no hunting is still stuck for some reason, and but there's they're slowly changing it. They've opened up some deer hunting. I'm saying that hunting. that goes all across the board, <clears throat> almost as like an umbrella for hunting in general. It's not just for for wing shooting or for deer hunting. It just it covers everything as a broad spectrum, right? Correct. In in certain states, and right. certain counties are starting to open it back up. Um, hmm. But, but the problem is, is that they, they don't take that in consideration when it comes to the regulations of your season. So part of that 30 days, they're not tacking on so many Sundays within that 30 days mm-hmm. to make up the Sundays that are closed. It's a 30-day window where there's a Sunday in there or not, and whether it's open for you to hunt or not. That's crazy. Yeah. Just the whole, the whole thought of like Sundays being closed is just kind of a, I mean, at least being over here, you know, we have the we have the longest season in the continental us we have the most liberal limits i mean seven ducks you can shoot seven mallards seven teal seven ringneck i mean the only thing that you're really limited on is your scop your canvas back your redheads pintail. i don't think you're limited on pintail. your redheads pintail yeah i mean wait in three weeks we're going to be shooing pintails away with brooms because we've already shot our three for the day yeah but I think that'd be a really hard pill, like you said, for a lot of guys to swallow, uh, having a restricted bag limit down, even say taking it to five mallards. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you'd have a little bit of an uproar with people being irritated about that. Yeah, everybody loves their green. Um, (laughs) You know, so so I've hunted, I think, technically every flyway. I've gone to Habitat Flats three times. I've been fortunate enough to do so with some close friends. And so we've hunted their main spot there in Sumner, which is technically still the Mississippi. No, yeah, the Mississippi Flyway. And then his newer spot, uh, the Grand, is technically in the Central Flyway with the way the Missouri River kind of cuts. Yeah. Um, and those guys are all about green and the mallards. Yeah. And so the limit there is six, four green heads, and then you can tack on, you know, woodies or teal or pintail or, you know, other grass ducks. 
to round it out up to, to six. Um, everybody's about the green, but man, I want that diversity. Give me some Gadwall. Give me some yeah. Taylor Widgeon. You know, I think we have there. a pretty good diversity out here. I, I, yeah. really, I really do. I mean, I, I don't know the last time that I had a clean bag, right? I mean, it's always, it's always a mixed match of, of, of what we're shooting here. It seems like, especially when you get more guys, you know, if you're going out by yourself, it's a hell of a lot easier to shoot seven greenheads. But if you get three guys out there, you got to shoot 21 greenheads. I mean, as you work closer to that limit, you're starting to kind of stray away from that all green limit. You're like, ah, widget will work. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, some guys will hold out on the ring neck and, and, some guys don't like shooting teal because they're so small or or whatever. Man, they taste so good. Teal are, teal so are some good. of the yeah, they're some of the yeah. best birds I've ever eaten. Yeah. Between that, I made I made a soap skirter, a soap Jesus scoter, <laughs> surf scoter. One night, I was I was drunk at a party. I had just gone and shot them uh, in the bay, and people were like hungry, and I'm like, I I got some ducks, you know. And we brought them in, plucked them, and and I started, you know, like Paula Dean in the kitchen, baby. I'm cutting them up, toss them in the pan, a little barbecue sauce, a couple splashes of Jack Daniels, I put some cinnamon on them on accident because I thought it was pepper. And uh, it was honestly like it. People were like, "This is like some of the best meat I've ever eaten." And I was like, "All right, well, it's the surf scoter, so it looks like a clown. well." As long as there wasn't any fat on it, you're probably getting away a little bit. You yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I just know I made it and it was good. And I didn't cut any fingers off. So I got all 10 digits. They're still intact. Oh. Well, maybe you might have recruited a few folks into eating some more wild game. I mean, there's there's definitely ways my wife kind of wants to, you know, figure out. Because a lot of times I just make jerky. I mean, blind snacks and, and pepperoni sticks and stuff like that. But there's some really good ways to cook um, your wild fowl. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of guys complain about the gamey taste, but like crack open a cookbook, do some Googling, like figure it out. Like there's ways to cook it. There's um, so much resources now at our disposal. I mean, mm-hmm. again, going back to when you're growing up, I mean, you had, you know, whatever your granddad or uncle or dad um, did, it was, you know, jerky or, you know, burning it in the cast iron. But between um, Hank Shaw, uh, a good buddy of mine, uh, Wade at Elevated Wild, um, you know, what meat eaters doing. I mean, there's just so much diversity out there and resources. I mean, just pick something that sounds good and, yeah. rub it and try it. Right. Yeah. It's not that hard to clean the birds more than just breasting them out. Yeah. I, I think I shared it with you guys. And I try to tell my buddies, it's like, man, don't waste that leg meat. Just get a freezer bag going. Yeah. Freezer, just throw a couple legs in there. If you got a couple birds here or there, um, it adds up. Throw it in a gumbo, smoke them, yeah. pick them, you know, add bump dump a bunch of barbecue sauce in them for a sandwich or something or carnitas. Yeah. I've it's, seen guys making like goose pastrami and pulled goose. goose pastrami. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing over here? Like, and I'll even say like, it's naive of me just to be like, oh, I'll just make jerky out of it. You know, I mean, pastrami is jerky is just a different kind of jerky. It's, yeah. But to, for me to just save all the meat and then take it in and have it all done into jerky or pepperoni sticks or summer sausage or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of other ways to cook it. A lot of other ways to yeah. eat it that you can enjoy it and, and, not just have the same Jane plain jerky. Yeah. I mean, it's great to, you know, support the butchers in their heart. Again, like farmers, there's not as many of them as there used to be. Um, you know, I try to support them when you can, but don't deny 
the confidence that you should have in the kitchen preparing yeah. these things. Well, especially when you take in meat to a butcher and they ask you to put a $500 deposit down if they catch a BB with a knife. I had a guy, I was like right out. Of, I think I was still in high school. I had like 45 pounds of duck meat and mm-hmm. I took it into him to have made into some summer sausage and stuff. And I took it all to him in a cooler and um, I go, okay, man. I go, well, just let me know um, when you get done with the whole weight of it and which paid. And he's like, well, you got to put a deposit down. And I'm like, for what? And he's like, you got to put a, it was like a 300 and, this was like a $350 deposit down for him for if he caught a pellet with his knife. And I took really? that I took that cooler of jerky and I put it right back in my pickup and I drove home. Wow. I'm like, I don't have $350 to put on a deposit for your knife. Like, but that's a new one. Yeah. Um, you were talking earlier about the diversity of of um, you know, we we're talking about the hazelnuts and stuff like that. Do you remember? back when you were over here growing up was there ever very many snogies that came through the valley you know uh no i mean you'd rarely maybe see one that we just rode up to being confused or lost with a big flock of you mm-hmm. know honkers yeah um so i try to go back every year to hunt um it's you know see my family of course but also hunt and i remember seeing a flock of snow geese come over my uncle's dairy i'm like holy cow what is going on yeah. here yeah. And then last year, you know, speckle bellies mm-hmm. uh, showing up in my uncle's field. I'm like, oh my, those are specks. What the heck? Now, were those showing up early season? That was early season. That was early in season. October. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but I, no, I mean, it, was, it was a rarity. And then now it's, what, almost a regular occurrence to see them? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I hunted a field, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, but um, I scouted it. I got permission on it. And then I went back. Uh, the next day after work and just checked it, see where they were at. They're still in there, whatever. And I was like, Oh, look, there's a bunch of swans out here. And there was like a hundred snows out there and they came in separate groups. And, and I mean, it was, it was a really cool thing, but Oh, I see our timers back. Freaking timer, man. We're just having too much of a good time. BS. Obviously. So I, I, I guess in closing, Sean, um, you know, I, I would say that I uh, uh, appreciate the craftsmanship and stuff that you provided in the, the calls and the pens and Tanner will be the recipient of one here soon. Uh, yeah. Keep keep up the good work on that. Uh, excited to continue to read your your writings and stuff that you're putting out there and keep pushing the good work, man. Appreciate everything that you're doing. No, I appreciate the you know invitation, Larry and, and Tanner and conversation and uh you know, thanks for putting together a good podcast for, for the listeners out there. And if I got one thing I want to say for folks, keep practicing your calls out of season. Yes. It's a tool, no matter if it's acrylic or wood, practice get, and, get, and get it out there. Yeah, that's one thing I'm bad about. When I, hang my, when I hang my stuff up at the end of the, goose, the late goose season, it probably doesn't come back out until uh, August 30th. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> shit september goose starts in a week i'll, I'll make ready. it official tanner you you need less practice than most do you're doing you're doing just fine on your <laughs> on your column hey i i tried i mean i've been i was big into it i mean that was one of the things i tried to pride myself most in was my calling because if i can't bring anything else to the table i'll bring calling you know um, and jerky and <laughs> jerky lots of jerky <laughs> um calling calling laughs and jerky is kind of the only thing i really can bring to the to the table Sometimes you show up without a shotgun. I did it once. All right. And, you know, I've 
peed on my shotgun before when it was frozen, which worked out about as well as yeah anything. Um, but yeah, that's a different that's a story for a different time. Sure it is. Well, uh, Sean, again, appreciate your time. And uh, uh, guys, go check out his uh, Instagram account and check out his, his uh, good craftsmanship. So appreciate it. Hey, you wanna, why don't you plug your, uh, plug your Instagram handle for your call company and your, uh, your personal account on there also? Yeah, uh, bscalls, b.s.calls. Uh, pretty easy. Feel free to drop me a, a DM. Everything's made to order, all custom. Uh, Custom hand tarved, hand tuned uh, calls, uh, single read duck and, and short read goose. And then Sean Swearingen, uh, I'm sure you probably get the correct spelling in, in, uh, in the podcast post. So I won't bother here. But thank you again, guys. Really appreciate the time and I hope you have a good rest of the season. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. It was fun. Uh, best of luck with you over there on uh, East Coast bird hunting over there. And I'm sure we'll, we'll keep up with you. You should, uh, if you don't have an audio file of that, Zeus um on your page you ought to record one there, and throw it up there there is one by uh idaho multi-state uh champion goose caller uh, dylan cooper um on the reels on the instagram page for bs calls with the zeus goose and i have to check that one out he does he does wonders with that call that i couldn't even think of yeah. well appreciate your time and we will be in uh, touch great take care guys thanks